but it doesn't stop at university. Then you go out into the working world, and again, the only woman in the room. So everyone, and I'm sure it's even worse for people of color and especially women of color, everyone knows you're there. Everyone knows what you're saying. You know, you can't escape it. You can't hide in the corner. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and we are down to the last month of episodes in season number four. It's been quite a ride. I was looking at the list of guests that I've had and the topics that we've covered from the CEO of Coursera in the first episode, Jeff Mangiancalda, to people like Shelley Zalis, a major advocate for gender equality in the workforce and an accomplished CEO in her own right, to Dr. Lucy Gilbert, a doctor and researcher who has a startup working on a test to hopefully detect early stage cancer. We had skiers, Anouk Paddy, of course, Hannah Kearney, the gold medalist, people from NATO, James Apatharai. We've had professors, Chris Rorden. She and I talked a lot about leadership. She's also the president of a university herself. I've had also from the Academy, Marin Greenleaf, an expert on climate change who talked to us about her travels to Brazil and the rainforest and all the work that she's been doing about that. I mean, people in venture capital, entrepreneurs, certainly an expert on marijuana, the market that is exploding everywhere, but not yet making a ton of money for most people. We also had a former student of mine, Loie Sickle. Loie writes books for children that are about business and entrepreneurship. And actually, there's a direct line from Loie to my guest today on this episode of the SIDCast, Lori Walmark. Lori has been writing books for children for a very long time. She actually writes books about STEM about science and technology, engineering, and math for kids and has been really, really successful with the work that she's done. She's won all sorts of awards. She writes picture book biographies of women in particular in STEM, as well as some fiction. She's been selected as Junior Library Guild book selection. She's received various awards, outstanding science trade book, best STEM book, Cook Prize honor book. Oh my God, there's all kinds of other parents, choice, gold medal, and lots of others. But This is not her first career. She did a lot of other things along the way. She says now, my full-time job is writing for children. She loves it. But what did she do before? She was a software engineer. She was the owner of a mail order company. Actually, she had a bookstore on the web before Amazon did, which is kind of amazing. And she was even a computer science professor. So we're talking about, as usual with so many of my guests, such an interesting path. A lot of zigs and zags in their careers, and she's doing what she absolutely loves to do. And in this episode, we'll talk about, you know, how did this happen? How'd she get around to doing this? What's the connection from what she did before? She was actually one of the first women students at Princeton. In fact, I think they had just gone co-ed, meaning women not long before she started at college. And how did that affect her? And how did she deal with that? Some of the books I think are going to be interesting for adults to read as well. Codebreaker Spy Hunter, a story about Elizabeth Smith Friedman. Google her and you'll see all kinds of interesting things. She's also been a really big supporter to others who are writing picture books for kids and anyone who's trying to get their career off the ground as a writer. And maybe her history and her bookstore experience helps her in that regard. She's so delightful, so thoughtful. Someone that probably didn't hear about her before, which is my trademark on the SIDCast, bringing you people you never heard about and you want to wonder after you've listened for a while. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish she was sitting here having a coffee with me and telling me more of her stories. So great guest for the SIDCast. Such an enjoyable conversation. Here she is, Lori Walmart. Welcome to the SIDCast. My guest today is Lori Walmark. Hi, Lori. Hi, Sid. I am so happy to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's very interesting. It's unusual, I guess, but this is my season four of the SIDCast. And two of our episodes are with writers of children's books. The other episode this season is with Loi Bundy-Sickle. I don't know that you would know her or not. She's actually a former student of mine. And she writes business books for kids. (laughs) Hey, everyone needs to learn sometime. 
She's written books about the founding of Google and of Lego and Disney, companies that kids care about. So it's really interesting to see this genre of book and style. I'm sure it's been around for a while, but how did you end up writing books for kids about science and about STEM? Okay, so we have to go back to when I was a child myself, and I loved math and science. Anything having to do with math and science. My undergraduate major was biochemistry. I got a master's in information systems, which is basically computers. Math and science all the way. The only writing I did was business writing and school writing. And about 20 years ago, I had an idea for a middle grade novel. And I loved reading middle grade novels. And I thought, I'll give it a try. What the heck, right? Took courses, read books, wrote the novel. No one bought it. (laughs) Rightly so. I thought, okay, I'm not a writer. That was that. Well, I guess that's not that, as we well know. But just before you go on, did you ever go back and look at that book like years later now that you've become such a successful writer for middle school kids and other kids? Yes, actually, it was supposed to be published and the publishing company went out of business. Oh, that's not good. But looking back on it now, like I said, it's like pancakes. You need to ruin a few in the beginning (laughs) to get to the good ones. Yeah, that's funny. Well, the key to writing is rewriting and editing, as we all know. So back to, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, your parents supported your science, your STEM, your math. Well, they didn't, nobody called it STEM in those days, but <laughs> science and math focused. Were they also oriented towards math? My mother was a math teacher and not only did they support it, but when I was going into high school, there's that meeting they hold for the parents, the kids going into high school. So my mother raised her hand and said, what advanced math courses do you have in the high school? And the principal said to her, do you have a son or a daughter? And she said, I have a daughter. Mm-hmm. And he said, ah, doesn't matter. She won't take them anyway. Ah, terrible. So, yes, they were very supportive. Do you remember? Did she tell you what she said to that person? You can guess. <laughs> Knowing her, she probably said something like, oh, yes, she will. Oh, yes, she will. That's right. <laughs> That's right. In that era there were not that many women that were making their mark in science and math. And it's not that there weren't that many women who could do it. You were a good example. And I guess your mom too, because she was a math teacher. But there was, I don't know, rampant discrimination or just the way kids are brought up. I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Oh, absolutely. And yes, times have changed. Obviously, times have changed since when I was a kid. But there's still that underlying, maybe the principal won't say out loud, you know, your daughter won't take the courses, but the principal might be thinking it or the teachers might be steering kids, girl kids, <laughs> right, in a different direction. Well, you talk to a lot of school groups, a lot of kids. Is this something you're seeing or you're asked about a lot? No, the kids are actually fine. I gave one talk and in my book, Ada Byron Lovelace and the Thinking Machine, She was the world's first computer programmer, and she only signed that program with her initials, A-A-L. And so I asked the kids, why do you think she did that? And they said, oh, she didn't want to brag, or she was embarrassed or something like that. It never occurred to them. And this was a talk I was giving that had both kids and adults in it. And all the adults are like, we know why she only (laughs) put A-A-L. Yeah. And when I say to the kids, she worried that her work wouldn't be taken seriously because it was by a woman. They look at me like, Mm. really? No, 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 that can't be right. So they're starting out okay. And I'll do like coding classes with kids. And the girls are coding too. But the boys have already been doing more of it outside of school. Mm -hmm. So even at an early age, that split is starting to happen. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole big thing that goes in all kinds of directions. But you look at Silicon Valley and you look at all the startups and all the companies that start. And then especially when you look at founders that are funded by venture capitalists, the numbers are abysmal when it comes to female founders and actually founders that are of color. They're not white. Absolutely. Both of my daughters are software engineers. And we've discussed this, the whole idea of venture capitalism, that it is so much harder for a woman to get money to do a startup. I don't know if that's something they aspire to or want to do that. I don't think so, but it's more they have friends where of course. this has happened to them. Yeah. So what do you think your parents would say, especially your mom, the math teacher, now that you're doing what you're doing now? Because you didn't start, we'll talk about your various steps, but you didn't start this way. 
One of the things that's very sad to me is both my parents passed away before they even knew I was writing for kids. Because when you first start writing like that and you're not coming from this whole background of you've been writing all your life, you don't tell people because what if it doesn't sell? What if it's no good? So they never even knew I was doing it, which is one of those sad things of life. But I think they'd be especially excited that most of my books are about women scientists and mathematicians. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You don't tell people necessarily because you don't know how it's going to work. Although that's another interesting difference. And this is a vast generalization, but quite a bit of research behind it between men and women. Yes. You know what I mean? Women are, I don't know, more cautious or careful or thoughtful as a word I use as well to describe. We don't want to be embarrassed if it doesn't work out, right? So we hold it in until it works out. Mm -hmm. And men are plowing ahead. Well, as a man, it's not fun to find you failed in the public arena. I know that much. Of course not. (laughs) But maybe there's just less stigma. Right. And one of the things that we're trying to show kids, especially in the sciences, that failure is a part of the process, that it really is part of the process of advancing science is failing. So if you get used to it's okay to fail and they don't think, oh, I'm going to get a bad grade or the teacher is going to think I'm stupid or anything like that. That's a big step. How old would you say is your core audience for kids? It's elementary school mostly, I'd say like second through fifth or sixth grade. You know, some of the books skew younger, some skew older. And then I have a totally out of the blue fiction picture book that's more like preschool and kindergarten that has nothing to do with women, nothing to do with STEM. This thing about failure then, when you think about that age category of second to fifth grade, let's just say, I don't know what your experience is, but they're not that afraid. (laughs) They didn't get the various hangups that we impose on them or that nature does or whatever happens. You know what I mean? I think it's middle school that just crushes everyone in everything, including, you know, that worry about not wanting to fit in. So if you try something and it's different, I wear my nerd crown proudly, but many kids in middle school, that's not the case. You know, unless they're with a group of other people who are interested in let's call them nerdy things, they don't want to be singled out. They don't want to be different. And it's hard. You were a kid, a girl that was really good at and interested in math and science. So did you find, well, there would be boys and girls in every class other than the electives, but did you find that you were kind of an outlier even then? Yes. Another thing my mother had to fight for for me, architectural drawing. I thought that's going to be the most interesting class you could take. And you have to take mechanical drawing before you take architectural drawing. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. You know, you need to learn the basics before you get to the good stuff. So eighth grade, I signed up for mechanical drawing. You know, the form came back saying, you can't take this. In this case, it wasn't specifically because I was a girl. It's because in seventh grade, the girls took clothing and cooking and art. And the boys took mechanical drawing and wood shop and some other maker type things. Mm -hmm. So because I hadn't taken it in seventh grade, because I couldn't, I was a girl, then I couldn't take it in eighth grade, but I did. (laughs) So I was the only girl in that class. And then I obviously then the only girl in the architectural drawing class. You know, you hear these stories and there's no one listening who was shocked by it. There are a bunch of people that were the same generation and dealt with it in their own way. What's mind boggling to me are the women that actually make it to this kind of super high level. I'm trying to remember that movie of these. There were three women that Hidden were- Hidden figures. Were, Hidden figures. That's the one. What an amazing movie. And talk about, you know, not just being woman, being woman of color. Yep. yep. How does that happen? <laughs> it's a hard question. How does that happen? How it happens is because an individual has that inner strength and support, family support, friend support, whatever it is, to be able to show that, yes, she can do it in spite of the naysayers. And in a lot of my books, because most of them, as I call them, my dead woman of STEM, since most of these people, you know, like Ada Lovelace, it was in the early 1800s. Clearly, times were different then. You really had to fight to show your intelligence. Or Hedy Lamarr, beautiful, the most beautiful woman in the world, according to many people. And no one knew that she had the brain that co-invented the technology 
that keeps our Wi-Fi safe from hacking because you put people in pigeonholes. That's how you see them. Yeah, that stereotyping is so common. And it's something that's being recognized, I think, in business and schools and society way more than ever before. But it's still there. We talk about that even in, you know, I teach MBA students and we half of our class, half of our MBA class women, which wasn't always the case, I can right. assure you. But I think many of the top schools have gone, well, this is quite interesting what I'll share with you. I remember when we were moving from, we, I think we always had, I'm going to say 30% women, 70% men. And there was a strong effort by a few faculty members and, and administration to try to get as equal representation as we can and didn't see any reason why we can't. And nobody gave voice to it, kind of like what you said about the principle. Nobody would say it out loud, but you hear these rumblings and the rumblings went like this. If we do this, if we go from 30 to 50% women, what's going to happen to our standards? What's going to happen to our test scores? What's going to happen to our rankings? And I remember hearing it and looking at these people and thinking, and they're obviously not very good at math because you're expanding the talent pool, the population of talent that you're drawing from. What equation is possible where you actually end up with lower quality than higher quality? It's completely illogical. And they couldn't help themselves. It's just how they were thinking about it. My field is computer science, in addition to writing, obviously. And I don't have the figures at my fingertips. But when I graduated, there was no computer science department. I went to Princeton. No computer science department. That shows how long ago I went there. But there were more women entering the field of computer science than there are now. Really? And for a long time, I thought it was because you didn't have to major in computer science because so few schools had computer science majors. So you had math majors, you know, people who had that same skill set, they just didn't know computer science. And it wasn't until much later that I found out that's not the reason. The reason goes back to what I said about my coding classes that I give, that the boys are doing it outside. Boys were playing with computers. Girls weren't yet playing with computers. All the computer games were aimed at boys. It's not that girls couldn't play them. I mean, my girls played them, but they were aimed at boys. So the boys got that interest in computer. They got hooked on computers. So of course, they're going to be more of them entering computer science. But it can be changed. Harvey Mudd College, which is an engineering school, that's where one of my daughters went to college. The new, well, not new anymore, but new-ish president of Harvey Mudd College, mm -hmm. Maria Klawa, she made it her mission to get those numbers up. So you're starting with a school that already is starting more male than female. And she got the computer science department up to basically equal numbers. So it can be done. It's like you were talking about, you know, with your school, you need to have someone who wants to do it, who's out there looking for the talent, for the kids who want to be doing this. I always wonder, why did no one suggest I go to an engineering school? It never came up. Princeton has an engineering school. I could have gone there. Mm -hmm. But it didn't occur to anyone. Exactly. Would you say it's more likely that when I said it didn't occur to anyone, that that's more accurate as opposed to? something that's kind of blatantly nefarious, like we don't want women there. They, it didn't, it wasn't part of how people thought. Right. It just was not part of the zeitgeist, yeah. if you will. Yeah. It was one thing like MIT. I also, you know, I was choosing between MIT and Princeton. And yes, that is an engineering school. Everything is engineering. But that was different. The idea that you could choose an engineering school within a liberal arts college I didn't know till I got there. Right. And then it was too late. Dartmouth also has a undergraduate engineering school, a fair school. And they have also moved towards equality in men and women, at least in terms of the numbers. But we're in 2022 now. And Dartmouth wasn't co-ed when I was applying to school. I want to ask you about that. So Princeton went co-ed first. Was every Ivy League just male or just a handful? Most of them had sister schools. So Princeton didn't have a sister school. That's right. Like Harvard, Radcliffe or Columbia Barnard. So I applied to Radcliffe. You know, I applied to the sister schools of some of the schools. But because Princeton didn't have a sister school, I lucked out. You were one of the earliest or one of the first classes with women? I was the second class of women who went all four years. They had started by accepting a few transfer students 
I guess, to test the waters. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it's interesting because, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, they did a thing about women in Princeton and someone interviewed me and things I just hadn't thought of in a long time, like bathrooms. You'd have these four-story buildings and there'd be one ladies' room somewhere that you had to find it. That does remind me, actually, of Hidden Figures, the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, not as bad as she had it, where she had to go to a whole nother building. <laughs> That's right. That was a pretty powerful scene, actually. People are watching and just really kind of shaking our heads and saying, look what they had to go through on top of everything else. I'm pretty sure the movie sugarcoated what the reality was in many ways. Oh, I'm quite sure it was much, I'm going to say much worse, but that doesn't really give it the full weight of how horrible it must be. I'm sure people said things to these women in addition to not letting them do the work. Yeah. So how many women, like what percentage of the Princeton class were women when you started? When I was there, it was about a third. Oh. But math and science, I was sometimes the only woman in the class. I've heard some stories like this from other people, say in engineering school. I'm thinking of Stephanie Mitchell Beal, who up until very recently was the chief technology officer of Charter Communications, which is a gigantic cable company. And CTO is reports directly to CEO, very, very senior. And the, the senior tech person in a tech company. And she described being either the only or almost the only woman or girl in a class all the way through, including in university, and how she was told she shouldn't be there by one or two professors, including an advisor who didn't want to spend any time with her. Did you have experiences that late? No, I'm lucky that no one actually said anything, but it doesn't stop at university. Then you go out into the working world and again, the only woman in the room. So everyone, and I'm sure it's even worse for people of color and especially women of color, everyone knows you're there. Everyone knows what you're saying. You know, you can't escape it. You can't hide in the corner. Probably there's a lot of pressure on you, self-imposed pressure, because you're, you know you're one of very few and people are looking at you and you don't want to let down all those other people. It's not fair to have that on your shoulders, but I suspect that was part of the story. Well, and I think that's true of any minority group that you feel incorrectly that you are representing every other person in that group, which is not true of a majority group. Obviously, someone in a majority group, they say something ill-advised mm -hmm. and it's just their statement. But if you're in the minority group and you say something wrong, then clearly Everyone else in that same group that you're in believes that same thing and would have said the same thing and on and on. Right. So after Princeton, you went right into like your first job was? What we would now call software engineering. Software engineering. But back then I was a computer programmer. That's what we called it then. Okay. And was it hard to get that job? Okay. So I loved science and math, as I told you. And I had discovered computers and I loved computers. And I was like, how do I choose between science and math or computers? And a pharmaceutical company recruited on campus. And I'm talking to the person. And lo and behold, there was a field called scientific computing. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so I got that job because I ticked both boxes. You know, I loved the science and math. I had the computers. And how long did you stay in that career track? I stayed there for about five years, and then I saw an ad in the paper, because I used to read classified ads in the paper, you know, work wanted, and I saw an ad for a consulting company, and I thought, I don't know if I want to work there, but they're going to want me, because I had specifically the skills that they wanted, but I had no idea what they did. And remember, again, before the internet, it wasn't that easy to find out. So I had a friend call up and say, I'm interested in your management consulting job. Could you tell me a little bit more about your company? Because <laughs> I didn't want them to recognize my voice. Mm -hmm. if I... <laughs> so it was a consulting company to the pharmaceutical field. And I stayed there another five years, worked my way up from project manager to vice president, which sounds, whoa, vice president. There were maybe 25 people in the company. 
Nonetheless, 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 you were a vice president. still. Yeah, that's very funny what you just said, because again, I'm being stereotypical, but the stereotypical man would say, and I made it to vice president, end of sentence. <laughs> right. You are absolutely right. And I still say it that way. You're reminded there's four people in the company. <laughs> I still say it that way. And I really enjoyed that job. I liked it a lot. I had good people working for me, but it was time to move on. And I moved on to building my own company. I started a mail-order company that sold books about adoption and infertility. And here I'll give you a full stop at the end of the sentence. I had a bookstore on the web before Amazon did. Full stop, period. Let's just let that one sink in. (laughs) You were in e-commerce before Amazon. What year are we talking about? Okay, so I sold that company in 2001. So it must have been 1994, 1995, somewhere in there when I started it. Just before when Bezos got this genius idea. Exactly. How did that work out? Where'd you get that idea? In the first, was that like obvious in those days for anyone that was in the middle of the computer business? Okay, so you're a business guy. I thought to myself, I want to do something with books. I like books. I'm going to do something with books. I need a niche market. And I always said I'd write a book called Start With The A's because that's what I did. I started listing alcoholism, Alzheimer's, adoption. I just went through a whole list of possible markets. And then I thought, there's some that were just out right away. I'm not interested in sports. I am not going to do collection of books about sports. So some were out right away. Mm-hmm. This was an actual business decision, a market where people had some money, right? So people who are adopting, they don't have a lot of money because they've spent it all to adopt that child, but they tend to have more money than, say, a book about Alzheimer's where all the money is gone at that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something that was family-friendly. At that point, I had two young kids, so I thought it'd be nice to be able to carry kid books while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I narrowed it down to Adoption. And that wasn't based, though, on your own personal life. You started with the A's. I started with the A's. I mean, it truly was a business-related decision. Once I had all the possibilities and eliminated ones that I knew I wouldn't be able to stand reading the books about, that's where I was left. So books were in your life, really, for a very long time. Always, but not writing. No, not the writing part, but we're going back to, you know, early 1990s where you had this company and you continue to be in the book business, I guess, running a book company or maybe another one after this one. So that's kind of interesting. So do you find that those experiences, experiences you've had as a software engineer or in Princeton as a student, you could see elements of that in your books. I'll ask you if that's true. I imagine it would be to some extent, but being a book publisher is a little different. It's not a sign. Yes, I actually wrote and self-published two books because people would say, I need a basic book about how to adopt, or I need a basic book about infertility. So I did write those and self-publish those. But in general, I was marketing other people's books. But the answer to your question is absolutely, because it pulls back the curtain of the other side of writing. So many of my author friends are not business people. So things that are common in business upset them out of control. It just upsets them too much, things that just always happen in in business. But also, since I was buying books, I could see how, in the future, bookstores buy books. And obviously, things have changed. We have much more online ordering, things like that. Well, it's all online ordering now. Mm -hmm. But I knew about special sales and... I knew about self-publishing because people would approach me. They'd want me to carry their book in my catalog. And I'd say, okay, my catalog for a quarter page in the catalog, it costs me, I'm making up a number now, $500. You want to pay me $500 to carry your book? I'll carry your book Hmm. because I send out half a million copies twice a year. So it was expensive. Yeah. When you say you sent them out, you sent them out through the mail. Yes, mostly. To adoption agencies, it would usually be UPS because I'd send bulk copies, you know, to adoption agencies. But to individuals, yeah, it was a mail order catalog. 
and people got it in the mail. When you looked at the business of books, do you feel like you were kind of reverse engineering it a little bit to figure out, I don't want to say to figure out how to write because writing is different. You need to go back to school, in fact, for that. But I don't know, the mechanism, the infrastructure, the gears that make a writer. I have to tell you, I am still, my first book came out in 2015. So we're almost seven years from when my first book came out. And I'm still learning some of the behind the scenes stuff that's happening with the marketing, with the publicity, with supply chain problems, (laughs) (laughs) things like that. But yes, I really do think that having that knowledge and having the realization that it is a gift to be able to have a book published, that publishers are spending for a picture book, 70, 80, $90,000, and they're taking a chance on me. And that's a gift. Yeah, that's a big number, isn't it? It's a very big number. Because in part, picture books are more expensive to produce or just that's the standard run? No, picture books are more expensive to produce. Most of them are printed in China, hence the supply chain problem. My dinos were on a ship for a very long time. I have a book (laughs) dino pajama party and they just sat on that ship a really, really long time. (laughs) Mm, That could make you crazy. Everything's printed four color now, almost everything. Mm -hmm. So you've got four color. You need higher quality paper than you do for a novel, a higher weight paper. And all that contributes to more cost. So you write the books. Do you do any of the illustrations? Oh, no. No, 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 no. You use different illustrators or should I say partner with different illustrators? What happens if you're traditionally published is the publisher, your editor actually, and the art director pair you with an illustrator. So in my experience, they've always asked my opinion. I know other people where their opinion wasn't asked, but I've always been asked my opinion. I have been extremely lucky with the illustrators I've been paired with. Some are not my taste, but kids love them. Mm -hmm. So clearly the art director and the editor know what they're talking about. And that's always very exciting when you first get paired. And then when you first get sketches and then you first get color. And it's very exciting. Illustrators are amazing. I don't know how they do it. They're truly amazing. How does that working relationship operate? So how independent is the illustrator? To what extent are you, I'm going to use the word boss. It's not exactly the right (laughs) word, but you've written the book. Is it the editor that kind of manages this? How does that work? Okay. So the editor is like the air traffic controller of the (laughs) whole thing. Mm -hmm. The editor is the one who eventually chooses who the illustrator is going to be. The editor and the art director get sketches from the illustrator. You never, in general, communicate directly with the illustrator. It always goes through that loop. And the reason is because they need to know what's happening. You know, if you make a suggestion and they don't know, and then the illustrator acts on that suggestion, I make a lot of suggestions. They take them, they don't take them, I make the suggestion once. I think they're good suggestions that I make. I don't make bad suggestions, I don't think. But it's not my final decision. I just, this week, gave a local course, So You Want to Be a Children's Author. And one of the Mm -hmm. things I discussed was the difference between traditional publishing and self-publishing. And that's part of it, is that control. If you can't let go of that control, you better self-publish. I know that from experience, but it's a little bit of give it back and forth. Right. They want you to be happy, of course. Exactly. They're not just thrusting it upon you. When they suggest several illustrators, it's clear which one they want you to choose. And then I usually just choose that one because what do I know about illustrators? They do know. I might as well choose the one that they think is going to be the best one. What about the titles of your books, Laurie? Did you decide them? Did the editor decide? How did that work out? That's another one that it's a back and forth. And I'm trying to think if any of my titles have stayed. I don't think so. I have a feeling that's actually quite common. I mean, I don't have a big sample size because I didn't really ask a lot of authors. It certainly happened to me. One of the first books I wrote, I called it Why Leaders Fail. That's pretty good. It's pretty good, but I'll give you an even better title that came from the publisher when he suggested in a brainstorming session. How about Why Smart Executives Fail? That is a better title. 
See, and they're good at it. This is what they do. (laughs) As soon as I heard it, I said, this book was a research-based book and interviewed hundreds of people. I had this title in my head for two or three years. And so I don't know that I was excited to hear they have something better. But as soon as they said it, of course, it sounds great to me. Come on. Right. So they do know. that. So that's why I asked you about your titles. It's really that same process that it's possible some have stayed the same. I have three books now that are the queen of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's part of a branding thing, maybe, that work out. I guess. You know, I just wear my crown on my head and walk (laughs) around all regally. (laughs) So what would you say are the key elements that makes for a successful picture book? And maybe how that might be different than a regular book that has no illustration. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story first, and then I'm going to come back to your question. Another client of my agents is a friend of mine. And she wrote a picture book biography and asked me to take a look at it, which of course I did. And I gave her some notes and off she went. So she eventually submits it to the agent. And the agent then emails me and says, this person had submitted it. She said, you looked at it. Is this book Lori good? And my answer to her is, I don't even know if my books are Lori good. (laughs) It is totally not clear to me why some of my books have done so much better than some of the other ones. None have done badly. I can't complain at all. But one has just skyrocketed. Is it because that book was chosen by the publisher to be the children's book of the season? So I got to speak to the sales reps and then have dinner with the sales reps. So they're starting with that. I have a group of things I call Lori's Laws. And the fourth Lori's Law is People like to choose people who have been chosen, right? So has that book done twice as much in sales as the next book below it? Is it twice as better? I don't think so. I think they're basically about the same. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it got that initial launch. Which makes a lot of sense, but also makes me think about how do you know? I mean, no is the wrong word you know, because you don't know. But how do you feel a bit more confident for any work of art? And now we could talk about music. We could talk about a book of any type because you have people that are buying these books that work for film companies or agents or publishers or what have you. How do you know? And I'll just say that there is a mathematical side to this, at least for music. Maybe you've seen some of this. There's quite a bit of research analyzing, couldn't even tell you exactly what they're doing, the patterns within the music that somehow there are certain combinations of patterns, I don't know if it's chords and notes or what have you, that people find attractive, people like. And so some songs, it's far cry from kind of a starving artist writing a song about, you know, their true life. They're being manufactured like a product. Some artists are doing that. What do you think? I'm not sure how you can really tell. I mean, if I'm critiquing someone's manuscript, there's some that are just clearly not good. There's some that are stellar. You read them and it's like, How did this person write this? There's no way a human being could have written this. But the vast majority sit right in that 80% in the middle. They're good. They're pretty good. But how do you differentiate the 90% one from the 20% or the 30% one? I don't know the answer. I find it fascinating to think about and how there are plenty of people out there and research academics and others that are trying to answer those types of questions. Maybe it's inevitable that we try to quantify I try and quantify everything, so. So there you go. So you're sympathetic to this idea, I suppose, of quantifying a work of art, which is really pretty interesting. But back to your original question, because I got us off course, of what makes a good picture book. Yep. That one's easy. A good picture book is one that kids are going to want to read or be read to over and over again. You know, it's not a one and done. Now, of course, that's only something you know in retrospect. You can't know that ahead of time. Exactly. And that's the problem that many a parent will tell you that they wish it had been a one and done for some books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's an old story about some of those Disney movies that we used to. Kid just wants to keep watching it over and over and he can't take it anymore. Beauty and the Beast was a good movie, but on the 10th run, it's too much. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about a couple of your books. I watched the PBS film or show, Masterpiece Theater or whatever it was, last night about Elizabeth Smith Friedman. Yes. I know you wrote that book and I never heard of her. And I said, so who is this person? And I started Googling around. And then next thing you know, there's the movie. I think it might even be called The Code Breaker. I'm not sure. It's called Code Breaker. 
It's an excellent movie, by the way. So could you share a little bit about who she was and why you wanted to write about her? Okay. So why do I write about, how do I choose any of the people I write about? The first two people I wrote about were computer scientists. That's my field. That makes sense. I already had known about them. So I knew that there something needed to be a spotlight on their achievements. Those were easy. After that, I started keeping a list of women in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math that I might want to write about. And it's an ongoing list. It goes up and down. You know, this one, oh, there's research material about this one. So that's good. Oh, someone just announced they're going to write a book about that one. That's not as good. So that's how I make the list. With Elizabeth Friedman, what fascinated me about her story is she was not a science and math person as a kid. She liked English. She liked languages. She majored in English and I think Greek. This is not who you think is going to turn out to be a code breaker, which involves a lot of mathematical thought. And to me, that was a very interesting approach to a person, you know, and especially for kids to show them that just because something you're interested in in first grade, that doesn't mean that's going to be your life's work or vice versa if you don't like it. You don't like computers in first grade, but maybe you'll still grow up to be a software engineer. So that was the big reason I liked her story. Another reason I liked her story is I just found it fascinating that mostly before computers, until World War II, she was doing this all by hand. She had the kind of brain that was looking at codes and saying, oh, when the person talks about this kind of doll, it means destroyer. Who could think of that? You know, who could ever think of that? But she did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the part that most people don't know about her is that just like Alan Turing did in England, breaking the German code-making machine Enigma, she broke it here. But of course, we never heard about her. You are so right. I'm watching it. And there wasn't a lot in the film or the show. It was a one-hour show, so whatever. There wasn't a lot about Enigma. It was towards the end. And I'm thinking, Enigma. I mean, that's what the imitation game. That was Turing. That was big. Exactly. Yeah. I would have liked to know more about that. Right. And obviously nothing to take away from Alan Turing. He and his group did a great job, but she and her group did a great job also. But because of wartime secrecy, they didn't know they had each done a great job. And the other thing I like about my book about her is it gave me a chance. It is so stuffed with stuff in that book. (laughs) How to make codes. In the illustrations, there are ribbons. The illustrator put ribbons with sort of random letters in them. And I made the ill-advised suggestion, why don't we make those codes? And the reason it was ill-advised is then I then had to give the code. Then I had to check all those ribbons to make sure the code was correct. And I am sure there's a 10-year-old out there right now who is going through and is going to say, aha, you made a mistake. (laughs) That's very funny. So you had to be a code writer on top of everything else. Well, I used the code that the book explains how to do it. In the book, do you talk a lot about the fact that she was a woman specifically and how she wasn't able to run her team? They hired someone else who didn't know anything and the whole part about J. Edgar Hoover claiming all the credit. Well, that part, I spent a lot of time, do I say his name? Do I give him credit by saying his name? And I finally decided I would say the FBI director because I didn't want to give him credit since he took her credit. I could see that little dilemma there. I mean, the fact that you even thought about that. Oh, that's why I love picture book writing, because you can think about those little things all the way through. And it really was a little thing that I debated with my husband. You know, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Because I didn't want to give old J. Edgar, any credit. It's a little thing, but it's actually very meaningful. It's quite important. It was meaningful to me. In a way, it's not a little thing because it's infuriating when you read or see what that story was. And of course, it's not that infuriating because it's predictable that he has a long career of doing things like that and worse. But nonetheless, it's still annoying. So you do talk. Sorry, I was going to say, while we're talking about Elizabeth Friedman, I want to give a call out to a young adult book about her that came out last year, I think. 
is by Amy Butler Greenfield, and it's called The Woman All Spies Fear. And reading her book, I obviously knew everything that was in the book because I had done research for my book. And yet you read it, it's like, wow. And she also was able to get into more things like problems with Elizabeth Friedman's husband. She was working. She was running a household. He wasn't able to work for a long time. You know, she was doing all this by herself. You mentioned Ada Lovelace. Yes. So can you share a little bit about that story? Okay. So Ada Byron Lovelace and the Thinking Machine was actually my first published book. I had started it, oh, maybe five years before it came out in 2015. And again, because I'm a software engineer, world's first computer programmer, she was Lord Byron's daughter. That's an example when you were asking editors what they want and what they don't want in titles. Mm -hmm. The editor wanted Lord Byron's name in the title. And I was like, one of the few things I was willing to stand up for back then was like, no, it is not about him. And kids don't know his name. (laughs) It's not like they're going to say, oh, oh, goody, goody, goody. There's a book on Lord Byron. So I'd started it way before this current wave of picture book biographies, and especially picture book biographies of underrepresented women in STEM. You know, I like to think that I started the wave and then people just followed right behind me. What is her story? What did she do? Okay, so she was friends with Charles Babbage, and Charles Babbage had invented a machine called the Difference Engine. And the Difference Engine was sort of like our calculator. And then he wanted to do more. He wanted to invent something that's closer to our computer. And he laid out all the specs and everything. He never built it because he couldn't get the funding. It was called an analytical engine. But it was basically like our computer. You could say, if this happens, then do that. Someone had written in Italian a description of his machine. And Babbage hired, I guess she was Lady Lovelace by that time, Ada Lovelace, to translate. And she went back to him and said, this doesn't do your machine justice. It just explains the machine. It doesn't show what it can do. I'm going to show what it can do. So she added what we would now call back matter that was two to three times as long as the original article. But it solved a complex mathematical problem. Couldn't be tested because the machine was never built. About 10 or 15 years ago, computer scientists built a replica of the machine, ran her program through it. There was an error in it, you know, a tiny error. But considering she was doing it on nothing, she was doing it on paper, it was pretty darn good. And then, of course, Mm. no one ever thought about it again. (laughs) It's so interesting. What was her background then? I'm sure she wasn't studying science and math in school. No. Well, she didn't go to school. She was privately tutored. She came from a wealthy Maybe not wealthy, but certainly, you know, there were servants and think Downton Abbey. And you get sort of the idea. (laughs) That's pretty wealthy. That's pretty wealthy. (laughs) After she got married to Lord Lovelace, she now had to maintain three households. Now she was wealthy, but growing up, she was tutored. Her mother wanted her to learn math because she thought that would be much better than her father's wayward fantastical ideas, you know, anything, literature, fiction. She just didn't want that for her daughter because she thought it would make her be like Lord Byron. She didn't want that. And the baby left Lord Byron when the baby was one month old. So Ada never knew her father, always longed for her father because, you know, that absent father that you don't know is, of course, mystical and perfect and Mm -hmm. everything else. But she was tutored. But the important part of the story is she ran off with the tutor. <laughs> oh, boy. She was caught very quickly. You have that in the book? <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not have that. You know, she ran off with the tutor in the book. <laughs> she was 16 or 17. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things that you don't put into picture books that happen in people's lives. But there's some things that you need to. If it is important to the story of the person you're writing about, even if it's a hard topic, if it's drugs, you know, or alcohol or something like that, if it's important to the story, even in a picture book, you put it in, but you don't need to put that 
for one day, she ran off with her tutor. Right. You do readings and other activities at schools and have probably done a lot of that over the years. What do kids ask you? What do kids say when you read to them or tell them some of these stories? Okay, so some of my funniest questions. One comes from my book, Grace Hopper, Queen of Computer Code. And they look at the cover of it and they say, is that you on the cover? (laughs) You'll get totally off the wall questions like, what's your favorite candy? But the most insightful question I ever got, it was from a third grader. And Ada, one of the things she did was build a flying machine. It never flew, but, you know, it had wings, it had pulleys, you know, she built a flying machine. And this little third grader, he said, do you think she built that flying machine so she could fly and find her father? I was like, whoa, kids know a lot. That's a very empathetic remark, heartwarming remark, actually. That kid and kids can think of that. Well, I wonder if that kid wished he had a flying machine to visit his father. And that's why he thought of it. But I don't know. Yeah. Wow. So what would you say you have learned from being a children's book author? The question is purposely broad, but it could be learned about the art of writing. It could be about kids, but it could be about yourself. First thing is I've learned how to write because I didn't know how to write. Right. I did business writing. I did school writing. I did not do creative writing. We didn't do that when I was a kid in school. So I learned how to write. I did get an MFA to learn better how to write. So that's obviously a major thing I learned in doing this. I learned about community, that there's a huge community of children's authors and 99.99% of them are supportive of each other and cheering each other on and yay, you got a book deal and I'm so happy for you. We're jealous inside, don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very, very supportive community. And I have heard that not all writing communities are that way. Mm -hmm. I've learned that kids really do ask Usually interesting questions. Usually it's the same questions over and over again. You know, when did you start writing? What's your favorite book? And if they're asking what's my favorite of my book, I always have the standard answer. I said, well, I have two children and I could never say I like one child more than the other child. And it's like my book children. The other books would feel bad if I chose one over the other. So they like that answer. They like that answer. Yeah. Right. They'll ask, what are my favorite children's books in general? And I have, you know, certain authors that I mention, again, trying to boost up underrepresented names. Yes, most children's writers are women, but that's not who gets the most awards and who gets the most invitations to do things and stuff. So I just like to raise people up. And of course, authors of color, I definitely want to raise up. And these days, authors who write LGBTQ, Books definitely need to be raised up since their books are getting banned all over the place. Maybe offline you could share a couple of those books or you may even have a list. and We could put them into our show notes. Okay. The last part of that question is what you may have learned about yourself along the way as a woman who writes in a third or fourth round career. What I've learned about myself is to be more self-confident. My kids have noticed the difference in me that... I don't do as much of that, oh, it's okay, you know, that sort of, no, it's no big deal. (laughs) I'm more willing to take credit for accomplishments or take punishment, if you will, for (laughs) errors, but that I was always willing to do. But it has changed me significantly. I never had trouble speaking in front of people, which many of my fellow authors do, so that wasn't a problem. I still have problem speaking, like if we're at a cocktail party of authors, you'll find me off in the corner speaking to one person or maybe just hiding with my face in the corner. Haven't lit that one yet, Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely much better about sharing. And I love the children's writing community. But you're also able to or more comfortable acknowledging your own impact as a writer, your own success as a writer. Right. I've learned to say thank you when someone gives you a compliment. You say thank you. That is so, so interesting because it triggered a thought. 
when I was in high school. Like you, no doubt, I was one of these like really great students. And I was always uncomfortable being singled out. I felt uh, I just as soon not have that recognition. Of course, I've greatly grown out of that over the years, but I certainly <laughs> was like that then. And one of my teachers once said to me, you know, all you have to say, Sydney, is thank you. Isn't that interesting? That's all you got to say. Nobody needs more. Nobody expects more. That's an appropriate thing. And that's all. And it took me a long time to learn that. I wish you had that teacher when I was 16 or whatever I was. I'm not sure we could have done it back then. Yeah, maybe. So this has been great. Really interesting to learn about your story, your journey, and a little bit about your books. Oh, I thought of one other thing. Yes, please. You're never too old, okay? My first book came out when I was 66, and I got an MFA when I was 66. So you're never too old to start a new venture, to try something new. It'll work. It won't work, but it certainly won't work if you don't try. Well, that's for sure. And now I'm going to make a segue to a very odd example. Taylor Swift, she gave the commencement address at NYU for their graduation. And she acknowledged that the only reason she was up there is that she wrote a song called 22, and it's 2022. And she was very modest, but she also gave a great talk. Like I was really impressed with her. I wasn't planning to watch this on YouTube other than, I don't even know how it came up, but I started watching and I said, wow, this is really something. And one of the things she said is about trying. She said, when you're in school, and maybe this gets back to your point about middle school, when things start to go a little bit haywire with so many kids, the cool kids act as if they don't care. Cool kids act as if it's not that important and they're above everything else. She says she learned that while well, those cool kids didn't want her around, now that she has a big company, she's not <laughs> interested in the cool kids at all. She's interested in the kid, not the kid, but the person that wants to try, that has trying all over them, that wants to accomplish something and wants to give them a chance to actually do that. And that's not exactly what you said, but you can see the connection to what you just said. In writing, I know many people who are afraid to send out a submission because it might get rejected. It will get rejected. I had 500 rejections before I was able to. Wow, 500. It was different books, agents, editors. It wasn't just one book, but still 500 rejections. Plus, if you don't send anything out, true, you won't get rejected, but you also won't get accepted. That's right. This is true for everything. For, it's true for everything. I guess you got to be willing and able to deal with the I don't know, the failure, the lack of success, not that whether you want to call it failure or not. A lot of things take a lot of time and a lot of energy. And if we could deal with that, have that kind of thick skin, bounce back, we'll try to learn and then bounce back, but don't let it get to you. And I've gotten better at that too. I used to coach young professors early in their career on the research process, not the process as much as dealing with reviewers <laughs> and how difficult that is. And one of my sayings was something like, reviewers know everything. And then the next point was, reviewers know nothing. And both are correct. Yes. They know everything because you got to learn from what they've said, make adjustments. But if you believe they know everything, then you're not going to get back up off the floor after they tell you that this is you no know, pile of junk. You can't let that happen. I used to have a multi-step process after getting a critique of one of my manuscripts from a professional. So the first step was, that person doesn't know anything anyway right? <laughs> what does she know? And then the second step is, well, okay, maybe she does know something, but I can't do it. I can't implement it. And then the third step is, oh, you have to get past that first feeling like they know nothing, even though you know they something. Right. I mean, it's the art of taking feedback and growing from it. It's not as simple as it sounds. And it's a very, very big topic for people at every stage of career. But we can keep going on and on about some of this. Oh, I know. This has been lovely. Yeah. Thank you, Laurie. I've learned a lot. And that's like the best thing I could ever say about any podcast conversation. So Laurie Walmark, thank you so much for being on the Sidcast and sharing your stories and your points of view. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. 
The Sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.